Babies and children aren't immune to pressure injuries. Monlika Z-Flow Fluidized Positioners put your youngest patients in the best position. Z-Flow is designed for conformational positioning across the continuum of care, from developmental growth in NICU patients to pediatric PI management. Z-Flow, positioners that conform and mold to every body, big or small. For more information, visit monlika.us. That's M-O-L-N-L-Y-C-K-E dot U-S. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Alan Geva, MD, MPH, on the article eSimpler, a dynamic electronic health record reintegrated checklist for clinical decision support during PICU daily rounds. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Geba is an associate in critical care medicine, the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, as well as affiliated faculty in the Computational Health Informatics Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Keva. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? I do not. Okay. Well, would you start by giving us some background to your to your study? What kind of checklists have you been using in the past? What made you decide to work on a dynamic checklist? Well, let me say, first of all, Dr. Parker, thank you again for inviting me to speak here today. And thanks to SCCM for organizing this. I'm excited to share our work. We started, as you and others probably know, there's a lot of literature about checklists in general, and in particular in the operating room, starting especially with Atul Gawande's seminal work on improving patient safety. But the results of checklists in general has been more mixed. And in particular, there's lots of challenges with their implementation, particularly when it's kind of daily rounding workflow like we do in the ICUs. And nonetheless, we had been using a more static form of the checklist going back almost a decade. And that checklist, it started off as a piece of paper. It was a very distinct, hot pink piece of paper that everyone at Boston Children's recognized well. But that checklist really was a checklist. You literally could just check off did you talk about sedation? Did you talk about adjusting medications for renal dysfunction? But that checklist didn't actually provide you any information. It was just a reminder. So over time, as electronic health records started to be used more and more, and we integrated them better, we did digitize the checklist, and we started to pull some information in from the electronic health record that would be relevant for the checklist question. So we were able to, for instance, display the list of medication orders that the patient had so that when you got a question in the checklist about medications, you could look at the medications in front of you and perhaps use that to inform your answer to the checklist questions. But most of the information in that checklist was still static. It still asked the same questions for every patient, regardless of their clinical context, And it didn't really give you a lot of information to help you 
with decision making the way we think about it. So it asks you if you should adjust medications for renal dysfunction, but it didn't give you any information about their renal function, for instance. So our goal here was to create a checklist that would be one, easier to use, and two, provide you with more contextual information that you could use in using that checklist so that the answers you gave to the questions in the checklist could be better informed. So how did you go about developing this new checklist? That seems like must have been quite a challenge. How did you go about doing it? It was a challenge. We have a wonderful IS department who I have to give a lot of credit to for the technical aspects of the checklist. The information is all there in the electronic health record. It's just a matter of integrating that information in a way that's logical for how clinicians think. So the principle that we set out with was to say that the checklist shouldn't ask you questions about things that it should already know the answer to. So for instance, if it knows because we document when a patient is receiving mechanical ventilation in the electronic health record, if it knows from the electronic health record that a patient is not mechanically ventilated, it shouldn't ask you questions about sedation or keeping patients comfortable while orotracheally intubated, for instance. So we use that kind of logic to kind of clean up the checklist, to make it more efficient, to try to reduce the number of clicks, to try to reduce the cognitive load that the checklist required of the users. The other thing we did is to try to integrate clinical decision support into that checklist. So one of the questions that the original simple always asked was, does, does the patient require stress ulcer prophylaxis, GI prophylaxis? And as many of the listeners know, there's been a shift over my relatively short career from giving stress ulcer prophylaxis to every single patient basically in the ICU to recognizing some of the potential harms of stress ulcer prophylaxis and really trying to target it a little bit better towards the patient in whom the benefits would outweigh the risks. And I don't want to get into the details of that because that's a little outside the scope of this discussion. But one of the things we tried to do is actually not just ask our clinicians, should this patient be on stress ulcer prophylaxis, yes or no, but actually give them information to guide their answer to that decision, to say, here are some indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis that experts agree on, and here's which of these criteria our patient here that we're rounding on right now actually meets. So this patient is getting high-dose steroids. Therefore, that is an indication for stress ulcer prophylaxis, or conversely, there is no indication that we recognize for stress ulcer prophylaxis. That doesn't mean necessarily that the patient shouldn't be on it. You can still order it, but at least we don't see it in, from our electronic health record data an obvious reason that the patient should be on stress ulcer prophylaxis. And maybe we were hoping with this kind of non-intrusive clinical decision support, we might gently guide clinicians to using less stress ulcer prophylaxis when it wasn't indicated. So we tried to keep something called the five rights of clinical decision support in mind when we designed this clinical decision support. Basically, the five rights suggest that CDS, clinical decision support, is most effective when it's delivered to the right person 
through the right intervention format and the right channel at the right time in their workflow. And so that's a fancy way of saying you want to give information that someone knows what to do with and what he or she should do with that information when they get it. So by integrating this clinical decision support directly into the rounding format, it allowed our fellows, who usually are the ones who we say run the simple checklist, who are going through this checklist while we discussed all the other patient care elements during rounds, they could integrate that information in the appropriate point during rounds and actually guide our residents or NPs or the other frontline clinical staff in our multidisciplinary rounds with the nurses to have a discussion about that care element and make adjustments to orders, for instance, to if a patient should be on stress ulcer prophylaxis to put in an order for ranitidine if one did not exist and the patient should be on it right at that point during rounds. The other important thing we did in this context, I should mention here, is that we really put in the relevant orders for that part of the checklist right in that section of the checklist. So rather than just having a medication list in the middle of the checklist as a separate section like we used to have, what we did with this update was when we asked, should this patient be on stress ulcer prophylaxis, for instance, we actually put into the checklist pulled from the EMR, here is the stress ulcer prophylaxis that this patient is ordered for. This patient is already ordered for ranitidine, or this patient is not ordered for stress ulcer prophylaxis, but they should be. So there's your prompt to maybe go ahead and order them for it. Are there differences in the issues that get addressed with your new eSimpler compared to your original simple checklist? We didn't change the content too much. We tried to, which helped us to be able to compare between the original eSimple and eSimpler because we we had our focus areas for the ICU, which were our focus areas both in the original era with eSimple and our new era with eSimpler. So we focused on sedation, which was both maintaining sedation while a patient was intubated and weaning sedation after they were extubated. We focused on invasive lines and tubes. That's the I in the acronym for Simpler. We focused on medications and measurements, which included adjustment for renal dysfunction or hepatic dysfunction if present, as well as making sure we were dosing medications for appropriate weights. We focused on prophylaxis, which included stress ulcer prophylaxis and VTE prophylaxis. We focused on lab plans and we focused on enteral nutrition, measurements of growth, and then we always had an other section that was other, that really was checklist type items, like making sure we were doing pregnancy tests for older girls, for instance. So the things we focused on in the checklists, they were they were consistent between the two periods. And we weren't really linking this specifically with explicit QI interventions other than trying to improve the way we displayed information and the information that we provided to the rounding team. How did you evaluate eSimpler? So we took two approaches to evaluating it. We wanted to see First of all, how usable the checklist was going to be. And so we 
did this by actually following the rounding teams and doing real-time assessment by trained observers of how often the checklist led to productive discussions during rounds and to interruptions to rounds by the nurses who were correcting us, for instance, about inaccurate information. We also looked at how long the checklist added to rounds because other studies have found that the time to use a checklist was a significant predictor of its usability and how often it was used and how much it improved outcomes in those units. And then we looked at, we didn't have patient outcomes per se, because we don't necessarily expect these kind of quality improvement interventions to make obvious changes to a patient outcome like length of mechanical ventilation, for instance, because that would be a very complex process. But we did look at how consistently our indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis matched our orders for stress ulcer prophylaxis, how often we prescribed VTE prophylaxis. We also looked at the number of line days for central venous catheters, how often we were measuring weights to keep track of patient weights on a regular basis, and length and head circumference as well for appropriately aged patients. So we looked at those kind of process measures as well. How did you, I guess, transition from the old static checklist to the dynamic one? That can't have been too easy either. That part, actually, I'm proud to say was not too difficult. And I say that because I think one of the benefits of us designing something that was custom, and this was a web-based application, and it used kind of core principles of usability and user and good user interface design. And so what this allowed us to do, rather than being locked into the standard kind of out of the box EMR, we happen to use Cerner, but I think there's similar problems with Epic, is that it allowed us to really design around our users. And I'm a big believer. I had a mentor years ago who said that Rather than us being tested on how to use an EMR or trained in how to use it, how well we can use it out of the box should be an evaluation of that EMR. And we tried to keep that in mind with eSimple. So the transition ended up being pretty easy because I'm proud to say that our team was able to create something that made sense to users. The information was just there in front of them where they expected it to be. And all the questions were clear. The buttons were where they expected them and did what they expected it to do. And so very little actual training was required in order to get our fellows and attendings to use eSimpler. We did use a washing period when we did our evaluation just to make sure that if there were any hiccups in transitioning that that didn't affect our usability statistics or anything like that. But Fellows, again, who are the primary users, picked it up very quickly, and I think were generally pleased with it as well. So what did the clinicians think of the new checklist? You said they're generally pleased. What kind of feedback did you get on that? Yeah, I will admit we had a relatively small sample size because we only had about two years of fellows who had used both the older and the new checklist. And so we only had about 15 fellows who even could potentially answer our survey. But overwhelmingly, they said that 
the new version, eSimpler, was easier to use, that the interface was clear and understandable, and overall that it was an improvement from the prior eSimple. So they were happy with it. And I think part of that was because when we looked at the amount of time that they were taking to complete eSimpler, and that's, I, I have to acknowledge here that there's a little bit of overlap because some of the questions can be answered as the resident or NP went through the other data on rounds. And so there was a little bit of simultaneous between the presentations and the filling out of eSimpler, but the actual running through confirming the answers and getting us all on the same page with the entire care team, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, et cetera, it took about half as much time to complete eSimpler, only about 30 seconds, as opposed to about a minute with the old system. So I think it helped move rounds along more efficiently as well. What about the process measures? Did you find a change in the process measures you looked at? We did. We found that most of them improved. They were small improvements, as expected, given the complexity of critical care and all the factors that go into it. But we reduced the mismatch, for instance, between stress ulcer prophylaxis orders and between the indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis by about 5%, from 14% to 9%. We increased the number of patient days that stress that VTE prophylaxis was prescribed by about 16%. And we increased the number of when patients had renal dysfunction as quantified by their estimated GFR, we increased the number of the percent of days that clinicians recognized that medications should be adjusted for renal dysfunction as well. So we improved over a bunch of our process measures. There were a few that did not improve, we should acknowledge, like CV, the central venous catheter utilization did not actually change between the two EPO. But I think some of that is not necessarily unexpected because all we did for central lines in eSimpler as opposed to eSimple was improve the clarity of the display there. We didn't really have significant new clinical decision support that could help clinicians get central lines out any sooner than they otherwise might. And we were already, I think, pretty good about knowing which central lines were in. So not everything had a change. This isn't a panacea. It was not a cure-all for all our process improvement measures. But Across a wide array of areas that we did concentrate on with this checklist, we were able to show improvement in those process measures. Is this a tool that could be applied at other institutions? I certainly think that the concept could be applied in other institutions. It's one of the things that I think is really helpful in designing tools like this is having them customized to the workflows of that particular institution. And I suspect even different ICUs or other units like an oncology or BMT unit within an institution might have different needs. And so I think it's important to engage not just the technical folks from the ISD side, but also the clinicians as well to really design a tool that fits with your workflow and with what you want to get out of it. Because 
it's one of those things that's going to be perfectly designed to achieve the ends for which it is designed. So I think a lot of clinician engagement, iterative process is really important in designing a tool that would be helpful to clinicians. The other thing that I think is an important limitation of this work to acknowledge is that it's not built, we did not build it using standard ontologies. We built it using our Cerner EMR and more specifically, we even built it, our Cerner EMR is very far from the standard Cerner EMR build. And so this is not something that could be plugged into another institution and start working out of the box. A lot of customization and a lot of what we call mapping of data elements would need to take place. And partly that has to do with just the non-standard nature of our EMR internally at Children's Hospital. And so we had to do it that way. But part of it, I think, is also a limitation of these standard ontologies. I work with Ken Mandel, who is one of the pioneers of smart on fire applications, this idea of being able to have an app store for EMR applications that would be plug and play. And FIRE is an acronym for a standard that is meant to be usable across EMRs as a way of exchanging health data and is becoming more and more accepted. But these standard ontologies, unfortunately, do ha still have limitations in terms of the granularity of data or especially some of the things we want to look at in the ICU. And the seminal example of that for me is dosages for continuous infusions. These standard ontologies have concepts for medication administration, certainly, but they're not really designed around minute by minute or sometimes second by second titration of doses that are micrograms per kilogram per hour, let's say, for something like a fentanyl infusion. And so those kind of data elements, which I think are important for tracking sedation, let's say, if you want to know what the last sedation dose your patient was on, are things that are still not well integrated into these standard ontologies. And so I think custom mapping from local EMR data models to the standard ontology is something that the field in general still needs to develop a lot more extensively before these applications can be easily transported across settings. Where would you like to go next in your search to improve the use of checklists or improve the flow of rounds or the care of the patient in general? What would you think is your next step? I would love my, this is not my next step because this is a dream state farther down in the future, I think, unfortunately, but where I would love for this to go the next step to truly make this follow the five rights of clinical decision support that we talked about and to really help clinicians integrate it better into the workflow is to integrate these kind of checklists into the EMR. So to right now we pull, as I said, we we have a custom web application that pulls information out of the EMR and we track the data and we track the results. So we record it into a database, but we're not able in an integrative fashion to have the flexibility of our custom design to do that web-based application development and also have the benefits of writing directly into the EMR, not just as a static document, but as a dynamic 
process that allows the clinicians as they answer checklist questions, for instance, to put in orders to use those data elements to help automate or facilitate the attendings documentation that we have to do for billing and compliance purposes, for instance. So better true integration, deep integration with the EMR is one of my longer term hopes and wishes for this kind of thing. A more feasible next step, a shorter term next step, I think, for this is to integrate it into the EMR as a more static document to be able to keep track of this information as a way of informing shift-to-shift handoffs. And I think there's an opportunity here because I suspect our ICU functions similarly to a lot of other ICUs where a lot of plans are made longitudinally for patients by the daytime team, that is the quote unquote primary team for a patient, the longitudinal team for a patient, but a lot of the elements of those plans have to be carried out by overnight teams that are caring for the patient only for one or several nights at a time. And so one of the things that we built into eSimpler that we are not using effectively right now, for instance, is something as simple as saying, here is the lab plan, here is a chest x-ray plan, here is a fluid balance goal for this patient. And we're making those plans as part of our morning rounds, and we hopefully record those in our notes, but we aren't summarizing it in a way that a night team can get quick and easy access to it and use it to inform their plans in a way that facilitates night rounding and and the overnight patient care. So that's one of the quality improvement things that we're working on with eSimpler. You've got some great ideas and you've done some great work here. Do you have any additional comments you'd like to make? Just that I really, again, I said this at the beginning and I really want to say again, we are very fortunate in my department to have wonderful support from a very wonderful group of programmers who come from various backgrounds. And I really think that in terms of the future of pediatric critical care, I really hope we are able to further develop these kind of collaborations between clinicians, informaticists, programmers, data analysts, and really create clever and original applications that can facilitate and improve our care in ways that traditional EMRs, which in many ways are just digital versions of our paper records, aren't able to do. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Dr. Geva. This really has been very interesting and informative. Thank you very much again for having me, Dr. Parker. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. We have been talking with Dr. Alan Geva from Boston Children's Hospital about the article eSimpler, a dynamic electronic health record integrated checklist for clinical decision support during PICU daily rounds, published in May 2021, Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Babies and children aren't immune to pressure injuries. Manlika Z-Flow Fluidized Positioners put your youngest patients in the best position. Z-Flow is designed for conformational positioning across the continuum of care, from developmental growth in NICU patients to pediatric PI management. Z-Flow, positioners that conform and mold to every body. 
big or small. For more information, visit monlika.us. That's M-O-L-N-L-Y-C-K-E dot U-S. Margaret M. Parker, M.D., M.C.C.M., is a professor emeritus of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, ICU, at Stony Brook University Medical Center. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and currently serves as associate editor of Critical Care Medicine and senior associate editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. In her role as associate editor, Dr. Parker conducts interviews with authors of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine articles and other pediatric critical care experts. Dr. Parker received her Bachelor of Science and Medical degrees from Brown University. She trained in internal medicine at Roger Williams General Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, USA, and in critical care at the National Institutes of Health, NIH, in Bethesda, Maryland, USA. She spent 11 years in the critical care medicine department at the NIH, where she was head of the critical care section. In 1991, she accepted a position in the pediatric ICU at Stony Brook University and became the director of the unit, where she served for 27 years. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.